It's rolling. Hello. Sharice and I were talking about whether our parents care about what we do. Yeah. I mean, my mother cares mostly that I make enough money to keep a roof over my head. I think above all else related to work. And then also that I'm happy. Otherwise, I don't think she really cares. Yeah, I don't think my parents care that well, much. Also that I don't do anything illegal. I think she would really? care. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Megan, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. Making It Up is supported by our generous Patreon members. To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash To help us keep going, consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash for access to our Discord, exclusive newsletters, and more. Let's get into it. Your parents, that is a factor in their mind. They're like, oh, I hope Sharice isn't doing something illegal right now. Really? For my mom, I genuinely think really? so. Really? She thinks you're you're a bad person like that, hey? No, I think it's just like important to her that we are not... I don't know. I should ask her that. I, I like me, I'm going to ask her. the last person that would break the law. I'm going to ask her. Well, yeah, because like I'm her daughter. I, I'm going to ask her if I was to engage in some like slightly Probably shady... Probably white collar crime for sure. Yes, most likely. I'm, I'll ask her what she thinks about that. If it means Tax like, evasion. you know, I... Can't Sharice is going to buy some bougie hand soap and claim it. Okay. The false well, expense. Well, now. <laughs> You're just making accusations on a Rove Quarter podcast. What? People no, I'm there. just speculating. If you were to get busted, okay. it'd be like. Let's be clear. You, I don't know. It could be more than that. I could be doing like insider trading or something. I don't know. Probably not. Perhaps. What about you, Eugene? If you were to get arrested, what would you get arrested for? Five, ten years ago, maybe public intoxication fighting oh indecent exposure whoa 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 <laughs> no definitely true. not true it's true i'm surprised definitely you haven't been that. arrested for that i mean no the i think the but actually the likelihood of indecent exposure is actually <laughs> relatively high because when you play soccer or play sports or whatever and you got to like pee before it's so funny because i don't know if you saw my instagram i did so i just posted this thing on instagram where this is running joke where I'm always the last one into the team huddle before kickoff. And it's because I'm always going to the bathroom. Because but, you drink a lot of water? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, what would you get arrested for now? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I'm pretty squeaky clean. To be honest, it probably would be a white collar crime. I mean, that's what we're going to say on air. Yeah. Squeaky clean. <laughs> no one come find us. No one investigate our taxes. Or I could see myself like missing out on having a particular license for something like not yeah. knowing like just oh you know what you started something or you did something or you like yeah put together an event and you forgot to have a license anyways that was a that was a detour shout outs to matt and justine yep thank you guys each of them actually hit me up on whatsapp privately and were like oh i really enjoyed this episode which was 165 which spoke about social media managers and living on a commune yeah, we appreciate it. We should start utilizing the opening sequence as an ask me anything for a question. For other people, yeah. not like you and me. Yeah. 
Sure. Folks, if you would like to ask Eugene and I anything, as Eugene puts it, we'll answer in this intro bit before we talk about some other things. This week's episode is about capitalism. Wait, is it? I think so. All right. Should you go or me first? Yours is a media topic. So I guess mine first. We usually spend more time on the first I never, one. I didn't have, well, when I think of capitalism, I generally have a negative slant, but I didn't think mine was overtly negative. Yours is not overtly negative, but it is, it's work related. Negative undertones. It's work related though. Work doesn't have to be negative. We, we, we talk about it in often a negative way, yeah. but it doesn't have to be. So I was hesitant to talk about today's topic, not because... I don't enjoy it. I very much enjoyed reading this because I had a bit of a concern that it's quite U.S. centric. So Mm. I wanted to see if our discussion could consider it as applicable on a global level. At least the facts of it to begin with are quite U.S. centric. I think 100 percent it's relevant on a global scale because it's so indicative of late stage capitalism. Cool. So I don't really think that you have to worry. That was my one concern. Pretty much. I think elements of it are definitely strewn all across the world. Oh like, yeah, you're not. You're, you might Except not find... I just don't have the facts for that in terms of like. Okay, I should probably say what. Yeah, it we is. we like to talk about topics before actually talking about them. Increases the suspense, you know. Mm-hmm. Keep people guessing. Today's subject comes courtesy of Anne Helen Peterson, an author whose articles we've spoken about before on making it up. This week's subject from which her was newsletter, the one we did before. It's the it's also about work and it was the one about how managers and companies tell you, oh, take time if you need it. Oh, but yeah. that's really like I'm, a performative I'm way. I'm going to go back and I'm going to support her on whatever. Substack. Yes. Although this must have been a free piece. This was a free piece because so, neither you or I are paying. I will. This pay is not a paid sure. ad, but I will also add that of interest. She recently started a discord with a couple of other Substack oh, yeah, authors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like a bundle. Yeah, that's so smart. you can join their collective Discord and they talk about like semi-adjacent subjects, which yeah. I thought was interesting. That's actually super smart. It's like if us and Jeff Hamada of Boom went in on a Discord together. Yeah, yeah. That makes way more sense to me than having, having maybe, well, it doesn't way, make way more sense so much as that it might create interesting dialogue amongst I agree. adjacent Like cross-pollination. Yes. So anyway, in her this week's free newsletter, she's titled it The Capitalism is Broken Economy. And it starts specifically about the current situation in the U.S. job market, where there are a lot of available job positions at restaurants, at retail shops, and not a whole lot of applicants. And business owners are sort of saying on Facebook and social media and to the newspaper that they think people are lazy and that unemployment benefits are encouraging workers to not apply for existing jobs. And they've painted this picture, business owners have, that they should be pitied for a lack of applicants applying for working at their establishments. However, Peterson makes a good point that actually a lot of these unfilled jobs are in places without affordable housing, where cost of living is higher than what the wages afford. The jobs are seasonal or deal with tourists 
or have unpredictable scheduling where they tell you last minute what your hours are, or you might be more likely to be exposed to COVID. In short, they are shit jobs. And that's why they're not being filled. And Peterson goes on to say that for the first time in a very long time, people have the choice I mean, to say wait, no. I was going to say like, are they shit jobs? I mean, they're, I guess at the very bottom rung, right? I uh, guess they're, they're, Is there a problem here with the word shit? Well, it's more like what happens if that's the only job you can take? Well, but that's the thing is that what she says is like right now yeah. workers have the choice to say no for the first time in a long time to no not have to go into exploitative working conditions or receive poverty ah, level wages. Got it, got it. And she says, it's not that workers have suddenly become more lazy. It's that the economic model that business owners were operating under has been broken in a good way. Okay. So now people can prioritize what they want to do instead because they have some room. They have a safety net. Peterson cites another author, Adam Rayner, to talk about one more factor as to why people are saying no to these jobs on top of all the above factors, and that's that they are demoralized. I'm going to quote her here. Because the hospitality labor force, like so many in the educational and higher ed and nonprofit and public service and childcare and healthcare labor force, isn't just exhausted or burnt out, they're demoralized which is different than being lazy or temporarily burnt out. And that was true even before the pandemic. Yep. Demoralization is what unites the underpaid pandemic unemployed worker, the adequately paid COVID essential worker, and the more than adequately paid work from home knowledge worker, the latter of which form the core of Kevin Roos's recent piece on the YOLO economy. Yes. So I thought that- Yeah, it's all kind of intertwined. I thought this was super interesting. Yeah. Did you read the YOLO economy yes. piece? I think you shared it. Yeah. In the briefing. Or in the in Discord. Discord. Yeah. Yeah. And I had some quibbles with that as well. Not not to say that wasn't accurate, but I did get that sense. I don't know. Obviously, it's like hindsight. But I did get the sense that, oh, maybe this is not like the whole picture. Because Roos's piece talks about knowledge workers who are paid well leaving their jobs because they're bored or they decide they want to pursue their passions, their side projects mm -hmm. as like their full time thing. And Peterson says, oh, it's not just that. It's that they've been exhausted for a really long time and on the verge of collapse. Yeah. I mean, exhaustion looks like different things to different people, right? I think that's the one thing that is interesting is that there's physical exhaustion, there's mental exhaustion, there's a combination of both. And I think there is a different level of exhaustion going on with call these like middle tier slash and above workers mm. like even if you're remote or whatnot anecdotally you feel like you've observed that well i just think that even if you work in tech i think you, there's a big cloud over your head in terms of what does tech do and how does it make money and who is the one that bears the brunt of negative tech policies mm. right like let's say you work for facebook right what is the outcome of working for facebook yeah. Right. Before maybe it was changing the world. Now you have to contend with how much negativity maybe you're helping create and or at least harbor. Yeah. Right. So I think that that's the one thing, generally speaking, there's a lot of different ways of looking at it, but it's, I don't, I'm not, it's kind of like in terms of pain, there's physical pain, there's an emotional pain. And I think that mm -hmm. the emotional side is probably a different type of pain. 
right? So people are probably going through the full gamut. I like thinking about demoralization as well, because for me, when I was reading this article, it felt like it tied together a lot of different things that people had been sharing and discussing, Mm -hmm. like last week's episode about social media managers. I think you could also use the word demoralizing to talk about the challenges that people are facing. You know, that particular story we referenced about the Raiders social media manager, he was just totally demoralized in his position where he didn't have control over what he was posting and people were blaming him for the job. Yeah. And on top of this, you know, in this discord, there was a lot of conversation about everything to do with base camp. And we don't have to go into it because there's so many details. But in short, they had a lot of internal, unproductive discussions, which led to the founders making some pretty big changes to policies. And the fallout from that was a third of the company resigning. No. And without going into like, you know, trying to debate who's right and who's wrong in this situation or what they could have done differently. I think the word demoralizing is like a really good theme here, which is that for a lot of people, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back, you know, like a lot of things that accrued over time, gathering up to create a moment where many people, like as Peterson says, regardless of what you were getting paid, you feel like I I need to leave my job. Yeah. One thing I did find really interesting about your piece and it's this big lofty discussion around if you as a business cannot be competitive to support yourself like in this instance where your business isn't generating enough revenue to pay people to come work for you do you deserve to exist you actually have spoken at length with scott about all things pertaining to job markets and whatnot um scott's like a really good friend of Macon. he's helped a little ton And in this capacity, it is an interesting thought to think, well, if you can't support yourself, do you deserve to exist, right? And clearly you're not adding enough benefit because you're not really adding jobs to the local market either, right? And I kind of argue for both ways. In some instances, if you're a restaurant, let's say, and you're not popular enough for you to generate enough sales, then you're probably better off leaving the market and allowing someone else to take up that oxygen. But on the flip side, there are things that make no money, but have tremendous societal value. Yeah. And also it's not always, there's, there are always exceptions to the rule, right? Always, yeah. We started out talking about businesses that are engaging in labor practices that are very non-beneficial to employees. Like such as one thing I said was shift scheduling, where it's like, Last minute, they tell you, okay, you have a shift today from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. And that's really unproductive because Mm -hmm. if you're a parent, then you have to arrange for childcare, et cetera. Okay. Transportation, Um, everything. Yeah, yeah. et cetera. Um, So there are obviously small businesses that don't do that, but are in the same type of business. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. uh, We were generalizing, right? Like you have to generalize a little bit to say there are a lot of businesses that engage in these type of labor labor practices. And then there are small businesses that don't or even large corporate businesses that don't. And I think the the question she asks, which you referenced, is not quite exactly the way you've quoted it. She says, we should ask ourselves, our communities and our government, if a business can't pay a living wage, should it be a business? But obviously this raises the question of like, okay, if it's not a business, what is it? 
Because like you said, you know, there are things that don't I make mean, money. Look, look at Macon. Macon is a prime example of that. Albeit we don't necessarily fall into the sort of frontline type of service, right? Yeah. But I that immediately popped in my head because like I cannot have this broad sweeping sh- stroke as to how to quantify the value of something based on whether it makes money or not. I mean, we're recording out of FMBG and they don't pay us to be here. And we don't pay to be here either. And we don't pay to be here. There's not a money exchange going on. Is FMBG a business? I don't know. It, in the context of like this question, I was going to get to this. Her questions at the end are really impossible to answer at the end of this Refresh piece. my memory. Okay, I'm going to read the last paragraph. She says, we should ask ourselves, our communities and our government, if a business can't pay a living wage, should it be a business? If it's too expensive for businesses to provide health care for their workers, maybe we need to decouple it from employment? If childcare is a market failure, but we need childcare for the economy to work, how can the government build that infrastructure? If the pay you provide workers doesn't allow them to live in the community, what needs to change? Collectively, we should be thinking of different funding models, different ownership scenarios, and different growth imperatives. Failure to do so is simply resigning ourselves to another round of this rigged game. And I don't disagree with her. Mm-hmm. Actually, I don't disagree with her on all of these points in terms of reconsidering healthcare and childcare and how much it costs to live in the neighborhood that you work. But like I think about those questions and it's too much to come up with an answer. Let's default to what they said before, right? Let's say you are in a high cost of living area and all the fast food restaurants close down and high cost of living would also suggest that potentially the people that are living there also have greater means. It doesn't mean everyone has greater means, but the majority. If I think about it from that perspective, then I think you get stuck with this really boring ass, like lack of diversity type and living situation, right? Because it's only things that cater to people that can afford them, Mm -hmm. right? But on the secondary side, I do think that the social net itself is increasingly more defined. It was never not defined in certain situations, especially like, let's say America, where you knew for a fact that healthcare was largely tied to your employment. There are countries and governments and people that get it, that understand what value comes with a social net. And there are people that don't. So it's really a philosophical take on which one you want to be a part of. It's not that easy because if you're born American, you're born American. Yeah, I was just going to say, if you're an individual... In that situation of being born in America and healthcare is tied to employment, it's not easy no. to change your situation. It's, I know this is like not super productive, but it's just like one individual understanding that the healthcare system is flawed and could potentially bankrupt you at any moment doesn't help you find a way to fix that is so far out of what you as an individual can do. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what the recommendation is when I'm faced with thinking about that question. Maybe a way of looking at it is even closer to home in Hong Kong. Hong Kong is probably a little bit unique because of its convenience that a shift change probably is less of a headache, potentially. We're smaller. Smaller, right? Yeah. But I think that, I don't know, 
I'm trying to think is obviously even on a geographical level, it's different countries have different requirements in terms of how people interact with their community and their society, right? But you're right. I at first when when you when you posed that question, you read that last paragraph, I kind of had like a bunch of things lined up in my head. I'm like, oh well, you would do this, this, and this. And then now I think about it, the complexity of the situation requires a custom solution, mm. right? There is no one thing that I could look at something that's happened in my backyard and be like, oh, well, it's easy. Just apply that to this situation. Yeah. I mean, there are things that you as an individual could do. I'm actually thinking again about last week's episode when we talked about quasi-commune living and you talked about how your quasi-commune in your neighborhood means that there are more people available for childcare. Yes. And so y- you've... Even though in Hong Kong there are possibly more affordable childcare solutions than in the states, or at least some parts of the states, you guys have on your own, separate from like government infrastructure, come up with something that works, which is like what you're saying, like this sort of custom DIY solution. Yeah. There's basically a babysitter everywhere. Yeah. In within a five minute radius. Yeah. I mean, when I was thinking about this, when I was thinking about the conclusion, I thought again about the beginning of the article, which is about how these business owners are on like Facebook and Twitter kind of like playing the victim, right? Like saying, oh, poor us. No one wants to work for us. And I was thinking like, well, one thing we can do as individuals is to not buy into that narrative and not join in on this temptation to say, oh, people are lazy and don't want to work. I think, I mean, I'm already not like, someone who makes sweeping statements online, but there are ways in our conversation that we contribute to a collective understanding of employers and employees. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like if you and your conversations with friends talk about people who don't work F&B jobs as being picky, then you place the blame on individual employees rather than recognizing that maybe there are more complicated reasons as to why they don't take those jobs which i know is not like a super satisfactory answer at the end of the day you're you're choosing the lesser of two evils like you're consolidating because some places are going to close down and the hope is that those that build credible noteworthy businesses are consuming more of the oxygen in the room like that's my general take on it. And yes, there's going to be, ah, oh, this is really weird. It's like, there's going to be people that unfortunately will be a casualty of this, but it might be net positive down the line. Because <laughs> if you run a shitty business and it closes down and let, let's say you, you're a Mexican restaurant, right? You, yeah. you don't treat people well, et cetera, et cetera. Then perhaps it leaves an opportunity for someone else to come in and or someone that already was occupying the space to do it better i think where i'm optimistic is a sense a real sense of a breaking point where you've reached a point that workers can say can truly say i don't want to do this job anymore and therefore if enough people say that and continue to live that out then employers have to reconsider their business practices whereas like before if There was always like that, you know, minimum of people who have to take this job, then no one ever has to reconsider what's happening. Mm -hmm. So 
I mean, that, that's why the subject is the capitalism is broken economy, right? Like something has to be truly broken for people to reconsider how it's built. If it's just, you know, faltering, I don't think people like take the time to think about how it can be better. Mm-hmm. It has to really stop working. From a global perspective, even if I can't say I know exactly what the retail F&B minimum wage situation is in a lot of countries, right? I would say that there has been, over the course of this last year, a real wave of reconsideration of what work means to an individual. I feel like a lot of my conversations are about people wanting to change jobs or having already left their jobs or, you know, pursuing side gigs or deciding, you know, I don't want to work for as much money. It's just, there's a lot of that in my life, at least. Like the trajectory that we once thought we wanted two years ago is not the same trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a recalibration. And I wonder how much of that we can attribute to the pandemic. All of it. (laughs) It seems kind of wild, isn't it? I mean, we've but, been forced to slow down and rethink our current surroundings. It's so weird to really live in a moment of like global sea change. Not just locally, your city, some kind of crisis happens, but truly um, an entire world of people having rethought the way they want to work. Do you feel demoralized? No, but my lack of demoralization is also because i sit in a very different part of i guess the system because ultimately like the demoralization comes down to the people that are working for like a boss or somebody right i think that's actually a big difference psychologically because the way that we've set up a lot of things were not because of covid but they ended up being perfect for covid Right. Just keeping like a certain type of overhead in mind, all that stuff actually worked out pretty good. And I think that as a lot of people come to terms with kind of working from home, a lot of those best practices were tried, tested and true, you know, 10 plus years ago, like running a, a newsroom across three time zones when we we're at Hypebeast. Right. Like that's you did that as of circa 20, 2010, even earlier than that. Yeah. Right. And it's all like second nature to me now. Yeah. So I am not the person that has had to operate in an office environment and I will never do that going forward. I can, I can't really see myself doing it. Even if I was to start something like that would be one of the primary goals to not necessarily be able to utilize an office as the only way to be successful. Mm. Right. Mm. I mean, your subject's going to be right on the money about that. Yeah. I would just add, in thinking about Peterson's article, I think I got really lucky in terms of timing in my personal life where I went and did my master's right before the pandemic hit. Yeah. And it was a real break for me from work and from just that regular routine of working and thinking just a genuine departure and putting myself in a different 
mindset. I'm very lucky. Like I said, I'm very lucky that I was able to do that. And I was extraordinarily lucky with the timing to have finished right before the pandemic. And I think that gave me a lot of, even though there was a lot of change at the start of last year, it helped me get through this past year of instability, which I can imagine if you had already been working for a long time and then entering the pandemic, you wouldn't have had that same like stamina. So that's it for me pretty much on the subject. Um, I encourage everyone to go check out the article in full. It is longer and there are some other great parts that we didn't hit on. Over to you. All right. What have you got for us? My piece today is titled, Try This NBA Strategy to Help Manage Hybrid Work by Tim Sanders. So this piece to me is personally extremely fascinating because of the different places where it jumps from. It starts in power grids, then transitions into basketball, and now it finds its application in companies and the organizational structure of companies. One thing I obviously want to do with all my pieces, they seem kind of random, but I want to tie it all back to sort of our environment, our community of creators or people that work in the creative economy, right? When I saw this subject, I thought it was perfect for you because it's a sports metaphor. It's an extended uh, sports, sports metaphor. so much. All right. All right. Let's start with the origins of load management. It's a term derived from the world of electric networks, and this is what Wikipedia defines it as. Load management, also known as demand-side management, is the process of balancing the supply of electricity on the network with the electrical load by adjusting or controlling the load rather than the power station output. And then fast forward to 2018, 2019. That feels like it was yesterday, but it was so long ago in retrospect. It's not that long ago. I mean, two plus years, like pretty much, I think this was the last championship before the pandemic, right? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, okay, if you say last championship before the pandemic, <laughs> then it sounds like suddenly yeah. so much more dramatic. Yeah. It was that season that Toronto Raptors start Kawhi Leonard was put under load management by his team. Uh, and he sat out certain games during the regular season to keep him fresh for the playoffs. Evidently, it paid off as the Raptors won their first ever championship. I want to play this one clip that talks about load management from the perspective of sports. They actually have someone from ESPN talking about it. All right, LeBron James spoke about load management. He was pretty black and white with it. When he's healthy, he claims that he'll play, and when he's not healthy, he will not. As for Anthony Davis, he admits to dealing with a lingering shoulder. Mark Cuban, though, he is all about it. Quote, I think it's the best thing to ever happen to the league. Teams have to be smarter about when they load manage. I'm all for load management. Worse than missing a player in a game is missing him in the playoffs. It is cool that coaches and players and ESPN actually talk about this team management concept using this term. Okay, so, so how does that apply to businesses? Yeah, so I think, well, I'm going to use the creative slant first. So obviously, creatives are human. <laughs> right? Am I right? Huh? Am I right? It's like starting so far back. Yeah. Uh, and in many ways, anyone is susceptible to burnout. Sure. Right? Yeah. Anybody and everybody. Yeah. And I'm yeah. going to read this We're quote. all human. Some people have blamed remote work for burnout, but research doesn't reinforce that point of view. The biggest driver of burnout is a higher workload. People are putting in more hours than ever before, in part because many firms are operating with leaner teams due to hiring freezes and layoffs. According to AI-based research firm Equilibrium, 
employees given increased workloads experienced a 400% rise in stress and they were twice as likely to feel burned out. The good news for executives, though, is the high workload is also the easiest burnout factor to remedy. Is it the easiest, though, because you also need money? Mm, but money, theoretically, I think is relatively easy to come by because if you're doing more, well, yeah, you're I mean, right. Okay, if you have money and that is the problem, then it is definitely easy to fix. Yeah. However, I will preface in my next line why I think it's a little bit of a dystopian take. Okay. Okay. Let's hear it. So obviously the example provided by Fast Company is a good one, right? It's an example how you can solve a problem, but it's also, it's slightly dystopian. And the reason being is a lot of these companies are building virtual talent benches to come in and help their full-time stars, right? If you're the full-time developer, you need some support. So someone's being brought in to help you out. Yeah, I get it. Right. These people help take on workload as things get busier and they reside in the world of Upwork, Fiverr, Freelancer.com. I'm sure all those worlds are where people are looking for talent. For the bench. Yes. To and, extend this sports analogy. And I would also argue that a lot of these people coming to the mix, well, maybe it's not as big of an issue as I think it is per se, but it's in reality, a lot of these people working here are coming in, uh, with a lower valuation. Yeah. Right. Because they don't necessarily have the access. They don't live in a major market. They don't live in a place that allows them to secure full-time employment to the same extent. Well, so they're basically similar to actually the NBA where Kawhi Leonard and LeBron James cost way more to have yes. on the team. Yes, exactly. Then, you know, the 12th guy, 13th guy. I have no guy. idea what their name would be. Yeah. So wait, is that the dystopian part of this? Well, is that the bench is valued like, lower? It's kind of like rather than finding full-time replacements, you're really just looking for not the cheapest because they still need to be able to perform, right? But you're just finding ways to plug this. So you're not really enforcing full-time labor. It's more about yeah. perma-freelancer. That, that was my dystopian take. Yeah, I get what you mean because there's no pipeline from bench to star player. Potentially though. You know, there, there's maybe, potentially, yeah. but it, I do agree that the way Fast Company kinds of talk about the way that Fast Company kind of talks about it is this forever interchangeable bench, yes. sort of nameless, faceless. They execute on what you need done. Exactly. And you're not really committing to them or growing them to be a significant yeah. part of your company. Yeah. Let's say Sharice is a product photographer. She just shot 1200 photos for some campaign and she needs white background shots cleaned up. Yep. So instead of her doing 1200, you would just go would and find hate to do. Yeah. You would find someone of a relatively decent standard to go and do that for you. Yeah. Right. So uh, uh, arguably these examples exist in a lot of places. You know, when you're training for a marathon, you're not going to go as hard as you can. You tend to peak right when you have to, perform right yep. same thing for a powerlifting meet seasonal holiday help that's another example where you wouldn't carry the same staff as you would maybe in december before christmas i mean even for myself personally when i was doing a lot of freelancing for a couple of years i have been brought in on in-house teams when their project load increased mm -hmm. so i was the bench in this situation in this metaphor mm -hmm. this is not a new idea necessarily yeah, it's not uh but in many ways, this is about essentially scaling, right? And I think scaling, as we talk about, sometimes can have mixed reactions. Um, but 
my positive slant on this, you know, earlier we talked about this being a negative slant, but I think in a positive, arguably more selfish slant is that what you're trying to do in these situations is to identify talents, right? And in, in the sense, in, in the example of Kawhi Leonard, obviously he's the star of the team, right? So you want to make sure that guy's fresh. But when you start looking at it in a creative production world, right? There are certain things people are good at and there's certain things people are bad at. Yeah. And one of the things that you quickly realize when you've done enough projects is that what are people's limitations? What are they good at? What are they not good at? And I think that this mentality in part is a good way to think about how to scale and create better work. So the mentality around it really is about I always, you know, use Sharice as an example, but let's say Sharice is really bad at bookkeeping. And, sure. you know, for her, it encompasses 30% of her workload because she's not the best at it. Takes a lot of time, takes a lot of mental capacity. Yeah. Could she find someone to come in and do her taxes, you know, every season? You know, that'd be a great example of you offloading. Yeah. Right? I, I str- this is not too far from the truth. I strongly advocate for people hiring accountants, actually, when yeah. it comes to tax season. Yeah. But I am surprised that you didn't pick a real example from Macon, which is that Eugene, myself, and Nate are neither the best at social media nor really excited about putting our time into and it. Marketing. Yeah, so yeah. I totally agree that social media marketing collectively takes the three of us way too much time and effort that we could spend on other things. Whereas there is someone out there that we can hire who would both be better at it and enjoy it more and therefore free us three up to do the yeah. other things that we're good at. Yeah, like I made up this term called like talent siloing. So it it's going to be part of my explanation on how to set something up like this. As that stat suggests, being overworked is what contributes to burnout. Uh, that in itself is something to keep in mind because mm. when you're trying to in- envision how this thing is being set up, you just have to take stock of what you have before you, right? So what are you good at? What are you not good at? What are jobs that only you can do? And I think this is actually really important because this is the issue sometimes with micromanagement is that Sharice is arguably fairly competent at a lot of things, but there are certain things only she can do. Like not everyone can edit uh, a piece that lands on her desk. She might be only one of, you know, five people in a team, right? So obviously you want to make sure that she's freed up to do those things. Yep. Likewise, maybe I'm in charge of overseeing the business of making. Yep. And if I'm the only one that can do it, then how do I relinquish some of the things that are taking up a lot of my time and a lot of my mental capacity. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And also, it not only identifies, okay, who's the best person to do this job and therefore they should be most free, but what are the jobs that are interchangeable and therefore could become any one of us handling it? So for example, like the briefing intro is a great example, which we identified, actually, this job, a lot of people can do. It's not just something that only Eugene can do and that only Eugene is good at. But Eugene also doesn't like doing it. It takes me a lot of, well, it's not, I like to do it when there's something fresh in my mind that I can speak about. So then we spread it out and it works and the effect is the same. Do you know what I mean? Or better actually. Or better, I would say. Because you have diverse insights and whatnot. So yeah, like that was my next point actually was like, what jobs can others do? Okay. And I I think that this is. I think the question of what 
can only you do? The inverse of that is like, what what is a what is a job that yeah. not only you can do? Yeah, which yeah. I think is quite important because now this is I'll use this example because I think it serves different purposes and outcomes. But like sweeping the floor, right? I think that's the the textbook definition of oh, the boss is sweeping the floor. It's more about setting the example than it is about working smarter mm. because the reality is that probably almost every able-bodied person can sweep the floor, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's about, in that case, a little bit different because I think you're about, it's about a boss showing that they are the, they have the ability to get down with everyone else, mm. right? Um, and then from there, the next thing is like, well, how do you solve this, right? Is it through manpower? Is it through uh, the acquisition of services? So that's one thing I tell Nathan a lot because like our team is not massive. It's a, you start to take stock of what are the things that can be automated? Uh, what are things that require someone to have like a human touch to it? So most recently what happened when we changed over from our previous backend to our new backend was that some of the stories and their layouts needed to be rebuilt. So I told Nathan, don't worry about spending too much time on this. Find someone that can help you migrate it over. Right. And I think that you're, in some ways, utilizing someone's free bandwidth. They're getting paid for it. So I think it all kind of works out in the end, right? Obviously, it's not like a highly qualified, skilled job. But in the end, someone's potentially looking for some sort of employment, like part-time employment, and this fulfills that, right? And I, I have used Upwork a lot. And I've, for better or worse, because I know that there's a lot of volatility in the business we run, like, you know, I might lose a client tomorrow having the ability to be flexible and to properly brief people in on Upwork or even how to find and source people. Source sounds bad, but you know what I mean? Like find people that are fit for your job at hand, I think is really important. And how do you speak to them? How do you get the best out of them in terms of like making sure that everyone's time is respected and I'm making sure you know what I want and you know how to deliver it. Yeah, and I don't think working with contractors, freelancers has to be dystopian. Like I said, I've been yeah, a maybe. freelancer in many situations and I didn't feel I didn't feel like I was being poorly used, you know? Mm -hmm. But I obviously think that it is possible that you become overly reliant or overly dismissive of the people that you hire from Upwork, etc. Yeah. And there's also different outcomes like for example, you know, Adam Studios is looking for a more permanent designer position, right? And that's a byproduct of luckily being able to grow into that mm -hmm. versus like, well, it, do, it does provide us a little bit more of a validation of the type of roles we need to fill. And that's one thing I, I, I've learned over the course of my career is that there are times when, when nothing is certain, you have to proceed with caution and i mean we're fortunate in this day and age to have like an upwork yeah right because yeah. i've noticed the trajectory of a lot of things that i've done is that i sometimes over index on perfection and as a result before there's some sort of validation i'm too heavily invested in human capital mm -hmm. which also sucks because like someone's coming in and like you know there might be times that oh you know what Things aren't working out. But then again, that is the nature of the beast of starting something new. I mean, that's such a humble brag from you because Wait, the overinvestment in human capital. 
because like, I think that's like such a, not a humble brag. What's that thing when you like say something as a weakness, but it's actually a strength? You know, like when you're in a job interview and they ask you, oh, what do you think your greatest oh, weakness is? Yeah, yeah. And then you say, oh, I'm a perfectionist, which no, is yeah. like saying a weakness, but it's actually a strength. So anyway, mm. as I was saying, you saying you invest too much in human capital is like an example of that, because I think that is one of your greatest strengths, which we've talked about, about, you know, seeing the potential in people and nurturing that does bite you in the ass sometimes. Yeah. Well, I, I'm speaking primarily from a financial point of view. Yeah. Because, you know, someone, I, it, I would say over the course of the last few years, like I haven't made that many permanent hires, but I've no. worked consistently with a lot of people. And I think maybe that but underlying- But there's a lot of people that you also began working with and then didn't stay in the picture. Yeah. That's how things go. But in short, I think the biggest takeaway from this is load management is also about empowering people to do the best work because you're freeing them up from doing things that otherwise are reductive to their interests, passions, output. Yeah. And I think unlike the NBA, there doesn't have to just be one star. Like the Raptors was really focused on like Kyle Leonard and load management for him. But I do think in a creative work sense, load management can be to everyone's benefit depending on the makeup of the team. Yeah. Because it means thinking more about okay what is eugene and sharice and nate doing and how does that complement one another mm. so that everyone get, does get to do what they're yeah. respectively best at yeah. so it doesn't mean that like we are props to just eugene stardom yeah it was interesting wait what because that's like what in the nba is yes. kind of okay. like you yeah, know yeah, what yeah. i mean it, but in a creative team it's a little bit different because yeah. There, I think there's more range in terms of like skills as opposed to like stardom. being on the court. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I read this article, I actually was going to share it with you guys just privately, like the mm. three of us. I don't know why I didn't. Maybe it's just like something came up, but I think there's also a psychological advantage to thinking that load management exists as a thing. Because if Sharice knows this exists as a thing, at some point as responsibilities get added to her plate, she knows she has the capability to kind of come forward and be like, hey, I'm unable to edit at this current pace anymore because now you want me to mm. interview people. Yeah. Can we find someone that's actually maybe even better at interviewing yeah. others? And I think that's something- Or that when yeah. responsibilities are taken away from someone, it doesn't mean that you think they're not good at doing it. Yes. Or not capable of doing it. It means that you want them to- be able to focus on this other stuff that's yeah. more worth their attention. Yeah, exactly. Do you want to repeat your list of questions? Because we kind of talked through it. Yeah, I'll, so I'll recap it. it would be helpful. Yeah, I'll recap it. So number one, what are you good at and what are you not good at? Number two, what are jobs only you can do and what are jobs other people can do? Number three, how do you solve this? Is it through manpower or is it through processes and services? So for example, do you engineer a solution? that is more about organization or do you go and actively seek like let's say a tool that auto posts whenever you set it for right like on instagram at 5 p.m every day if you're going to bring someone else into the mix how do you brief them in right are you making sure that they understand what they're trying to achieve and how do you personally want something done i mean this is a little bit adjacent but i think it's still really important because 
what good is it if you have to go back and redo the work? Yeah, if you right? can't specify what you need done. Yep. Um, and the last one, sit back, crack open a beer. That's stupid. <laughs> I don't know why I wrote that. It sounded funny when I, I wrote it. I think the last one, I think the last point is you get to enjoy the work that you're particularly good at yeah. and grow in that area. And that's like that personal reward. Personal reward. Yeah. Well, I do, I do think that in general, if everyone works on the things they're best at, then the overall movement of that organization goes forward faster as well. Mm -hmm. So you all reap the benefits. Like if you bring in someone that loves crunching numbers and Sharice hates it, then collectively two people that are doing it are that are really good at their job or enjoy it will probably derive a better outcome. Definitely. Yeah. That's all I have for today. I think that's a good place to wrap up for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon.com slash Macon. Patreon members get access to the Macon Discord, where we talk about episodes of Making It Up and everything else going on in global creative culture. Become a member and join us in those conversations. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. According to AI-based myquilibrium, I definitely think that's equilibrium. 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 According to AI-based research firm Equilibrium. 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 Hold on. It's equilibrium. It's yeah. equilibrium. But me. Me. Equilibrium. Equilibrium. According to AI-based research firm Equilibrium. Did I say that right? No, you really didn't. You say it for me, and then I'll I'll jump back in. According to AI-based research firm Equilibrium.